Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. Live on tape from the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City, it's Stephen Cole. Welcome to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Folks, I know you turned to this show. I know you turned to this show for one thing and one thing only, and that is sports news. We got all the hottest shapes of balls. I'm talking about the fastest, tallest, or thickest people. All of them running their dunk straight down to Trophy Town. So let's get to the highlight reel. The Staples Center, home of the Los Angeles Lakers, the Clippers, and the Kings, it's changing its name to Crypto.com Arena. Crypto. The most confusing thing a venue has been named since Houston's The Plot of Inception Stadium. <laughs> Generations of fans have grown up with the Staples Center. Now, for, my, for my younger viewers, that name refers to the Staples Office Supply Company. <laughs> An office is something you used to go to for meetings, <laughs> which are like very boring in-person emails. Oh, emails are long texts with more words, and words are faceless emojis that remind you you're a relic of the past and the future no longer belongs to you. <laughs> Go cryptos. Now, the Staples Center had so many great sports memories. Kobe Bryant's 81-point game, the L.A. Kings Stanley Cup victory, Logan Paul getting punched in the head. Now, the bigwigs over at Crypto.com shelled out some long ducats for this one. They paid more than $700 million for the naming rights. $700 million, which I believe converts to... five Bitcoin. Nope, sorry. 50,000... Nope. It's changed again. Half a Bitcoin and three bags of flour. It's a fairly, fairly volatile currency. Now, here's the thing. There's more vaccine news. And it's about more vaccine. The FDA plans to authorize Pfizer boosters for all adults this week. That is... That's great. That's great. That gets you third. Two times a charm, right? That's great because many Americans are eager for additional protection ahead of holiday gatherings. You need extra protection for the holidays, especially for your feelings. There is no vaccine for that moment, the Friday after Thanksgiving, when the party bus shows up to take your younger brother out with his high school friends and you spend the night watching Manifest with Grandma. Yeah, baby. Here in New York City, 
health providers have been told to give booster shots to all adults who want them. Any chance we could expand that to adults who don't want them? Because they're the problem. Keep that. Just deputize the Times Square Elmos to jab anyone who comes within tickling distance. Elmo welcomes you to New York. God, God, God. Take your vaccine. Since, since the passing of his landmark infrastructure plan, Biden's been taking a victory lap, literally. Here he is in Michigan testing out a new electric Hummer. Anybody want to jump in the back? On the roof? You look good, President. You want to... You want to hop in the back or on the roof? You call shotgun? It's like my mom always used to say. She said, Joey, my rule is ass, gas, or grass. No one rides for free. <laughs> she was a long-haul trucker. Used to down poppers like they were Tic Tacs. Get in, loser. We're saving the planet. <laughs> now, he's, uh, not the only one celeb... Oh, again. <laughs> It'd be very hard to do the rest of the monologue with these on. He's not the only one celebrating the benefits of the new plan. Take Alabama representative and salesman at the medical supply store who's here if you have any questions. <laughs> Gary Palmer. Palmer recently tweeted uh, to applaud funding for a new highway in his district. Completion of Birmingham's northern Beltline has been a priority of mine since I was elected to Congress, and new funding for the project has now passed. One small problem. Palmer voted against the package. <laughs> You can't take credit for the thing you opposed. There's a reason Jamie Spears was not welcome at the Free Britney rally. <laughs> it's not just... <laughs> True story. Not invited. He wasn't there. Wouldn't make sense. Wouldn't make sense. Wouldn't make any sense. It's not just that Palmer voted against the bill. He's also a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, members of which are seeking to punish their 13 Republican colleagues who joined Democrats in voting for the infrastructure bill. So you finally got the thing you wanted. Now you're going to punish the people who gave it to you? That's like a kid on Christmas saying, Yay, a bike! I'm so happy! Okay, Santa, now it's payback time. God, come here! God! Speaking of lying blowhards, former President Butternut Berlusconi. <laughs> Thanks to Jonathan Carl's new book, we're learning new details about the run-up to January 6th, especially the behavior of former first son-in-law and non-player character in a video game about Wall Street, Jared Kushner. When Mike Pence's aide, Mark Short, called Kushner directly to ask him to maybe help keep the vice president from getting hanged, Kushner told Short he had neither the time nor the interest because he was working on Middle East peace. <laughs> oh. So that's why the Middle East is fine now. <laughs> According to Carl, Mark Short was persistent, begging, please, Jared, can you talk to your father-in-law? This is getting dangerous. Somebody's got to tell him that Mike Pence can't single-handedly overturn the election. But Kushner simply took a step back and did nothing. Well, it's just like John Stuart Mill famously said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to depend on Jared Kushner. 
That's exactly what he said. Exactly. He was good. That guy was good. Lately, uh, the news has been kind of repetitive uh, and somewhat depressing. So I've got to say, and I hope this is never taken out of context. Thank you, QAnon. <laughs> I'll update you on their latest unhinged whack job hijinks in tonight's edition of The Q Files. The truth is out there, way out there. <laughs> now, if you watch the show, you know that uh, a few weeks ago, I told you the tale of a group of QAnon followers who had gathered in Dallas, Texas, in anticipation of a big announcement from John F. Kennedy Jr. <laughs> Unfortunately, John F. Kennedy Jr. was, shall we say, not able to attend. <laughs> but the Q faithful believe John John faked his own death, as did his father, and that's not the crazy part. The crazy part is, two weeks later, hundreds of QAnon believers are still in Dallas waiting for JFK to show up. Oh, yeah, because if JFK ever came back, he'd want to go straight to Dallas. <laughs> Just like... That's what... That, you know... Just like if Lincoln ever comes back, he's going straight to Broadway. <laughs> now... You'll notice there's some confusion as to which JFK they're actually expecting. Let me clear that up for you right now. I don't know. <laughs> Depending on who you ask, everyone from Princess Diana to JFK Jr. were rumored to be appearing. You can read all about it in Samuel Beckett's classic play, Waiting for Who You Got. <laughs> so why are they still waiting? Untreated mental illness. But also... <laughs> They're following Michael Brian Protzman, a former demolition expert. I don't know why former. <laughs> Did he accidentally leave something unblowed up? <laughs> Protzman makes wild predictions using a bastardized version of the Hebrew numerology system known as gematria. And I would describe Protzman using a bastardized version of Yiddish, schmuck. <laughs> Originally... <laughs> you putz! <laughs> Originally, Protzman crunched the numbers and predicted JFK was going to be resurrected on November 2nd. When neither of the Johns F. Kennedy showed up that day, Protzman changed his prediction because according to the Julian calendar, Monday was November 1st, so JFK was actually going to reappear at midnight. Don't you hate it when you and your friend are supposed to meet, but he's on the Gregorian calendar <laughs> and you're on the Julian calendar? That's why I remember this simple rhyme. 30 days, half September, you're an insane QAnon member. <laughs> The rest have 31. Ah, yes, right. The rest have 31, except February. Do you remember the time? The reason the Q folks might be out of whack is that they're missing the advice of one of their spiritual leaders, Q shaman and winner of America's Next Top Fred Flintstone, <laughs> Jacob Chansley. Not only did Chansley commit the crime of looking like an idiot, he is one. <laughs> After failing to find Mike Pence in the Capitol, he scrawled a note at the vice president's dais that read, it's only a matter of time, justice is coming. Which, turns out, was a note to self. <laughs> because earlier today, Q shaman Jacob Chansley was sentenced to 41 months in prison.
That's nearly three and a half years, so with good behavior, he could be out in time to storm the Capitol in 2024. <laughs> now, the Q Shaman's lawyer has blamed the former president for his client's crimes. And after sentencing, his lawyer told the press just what he would want to say to the ex-POTUS. I tell him, you know what? You got a few things to do, including clearing this mess up and taking care of a lot of the jackasses that you up because of January 6th. But my opinion doesn't mean Wow. I, I like that guy. I, he, I, they should put him on TV. Maybe he's a tough-talking public defender on Law & Order SVFU. We got a great show for you tonight. Up next, Just One Question with the stars of WWE. Hi, I'm Jordana Abraham. And I'm Dr. Naomi Bernstein. And we want to tell you about Calm the F*** Down, a guided meditation series from the Oversharing Podcast. This is something we've been planning for a long time. It's our most requested segment from the podcast. And these meditations are going to be between five and 10 minutes. They're going to be super quick because we don't have a lot of time. You're going to be so surprised how five to 10 minutes of really thoughtful meditations can transform your whole life. In addition to the first four meditations available at launch, we'll be doing two new meditations every single month. Plus, for the fans of Oversharing Podcast out there, you'll also get ad-free versions of every episode of the Oversharing Podcast. So if somebody wants to become a subscriber, how do they join? It's so easy. You just go to subscribe.betches.com and sign up now for only $4.99 a month. Or you can lock in our discounted rate if you sign up for the whole year. That's subscribe.betches.com. Or if you're in the Apple Podcast app, you can just hit the subscribe button now and sign up in the app. It's as easy as that. Hey, listen, John. I hold my hands the hot little cards here with the questions on them. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I'm going to need them because these yeah. two people are just a delight just to jaw with. Yeah. The, the lovely and talented America Ferrera is going to be out here in yeah. just a little bit. And, and then, but first, we're going to have uh, your friend, Adam Driver, is going to yes. be out here in just a moment. Y'all yeah. know each other from back great, to Juilliard great days. Great friend of mine. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, uh, folks, all across the country, Families are gathering together to celebrate this special time of the year, the WWE Survivor Series, <laughs> happening this Sunday here in New York. And I have so many questions, like, who will take home the title, and will someone get hit with a folding chair, or will they up the stakes and use a lazy boy? <laughs> and I'm not the only one with questions. I think everyone here at The Late Show would love to ask just one question of the biggest WWE superstars, like Randy Orton, Seth Rollins, Bianca Belair, Becky Lynch, The Street Profits, Big E, and The Miz. So, we let my staff do just that. This is The Late Show's Just One Question, WWE Edition. What's your favorite part about being in WWE? I get to beat girls up and lift them over my head and get paid while I do it. There is nothing quite like entering an arena and having 10,000 people chant, you suck. If you could fight anybody in the world, who would you pick? I would fight George Clooney. Maybe Cruella DeVille. Ooh, and this is gonna blow everybody's mind. I think I would fight myself. Hey, Big E, do you think I can get as big as you? Of course you can. It's mostly positivity and optimism. You're gonna want at least 70 pounds of positivity. 
I've been watching a long time, and I've always wondered, why do they call it a ring when it's a square? That's a that's a good question. Whoa. You just made me work out the most important muscle of all. The bicep. What's the most painful hold you've ever experienced? Right now, I've been on hold for 45 minutes with the damn cable company. Seth Rollins, I heard that when you travel, you always bring your championship belt with you on the plane. Why? Well, how else am I supposed to keep up my championship pants? My question is for Street Profits. I noticed that you spell profit with an F, like money. So, do you have any financial advice for people? Yeah. <laughs> stop talking about Bitcoin. Yeah, just stop. Just stop talking about it. Please! Randy Orton, they call you the Viper. Is that because of your killer instincts? No. It's because I'm a parcel moth. Huh, really? I would have never guessed it. Classic Ravenclaw. <laughs> What music gets you pumped up before a WWE match? Nah, I love heavy metal after a match, but before a match, I only listen to Bob Dylan's Christmas album. It's so weird. It makes me really angry. Hey, Becky, this guy wants to know if it hurts to get hit by a steel chair. Oh, oh wow, I guess it does hurt. Bianca Belair, I love when you use your long braid to whip people, but I've always wondered, is it real? Not only is it real, it has a mind of its own. Check it out. Oh, there she is. There she is. There she is. Oh, she likes you. Oh. Hey there. You working on any new finishing moves? Yeah, I got this new one called the Gut Buster, where I serve them an entire Thanksgiving meal, and I wait for them to take a nap so I can pin them. <sighs> I'm bringing all the fixings! <laughs> Coming up, Adam Driver. Late Show Pod Show listeners can get 20% off on all Late Show with Stephen Colbert merchandise on ParamountShop.com. That's 20% off at checkout on all Late Show shirts, mugs, accessories, and more with code TLS20 at ParamountShop.com. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank nice you. to see you again. Good to see you again. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for dressing appropriately uh, autumnal. Thank you. Thank I you. like it. Thank it's, you. It's, 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 the it's most seasonally appropriate. It's very uh, professorial at the same time. I feel it, yeah. yeah. Now, in, in the new film, The House of Gucci, uh, you are uh, the prime Gucci. You are Maurizio Gucci. I think so. Okay, yeah. yes. Yeah. And and Lady Gaga plays your wife, who is Patrizia Reggiani, right? Reggiani, okay. Yeah. Who spoiler, and it's not a spoiler. Everybody knows plots your murder. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm not giving anything away, am no, I? No, in life and in the movie. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, here's a pic of the two of you on set. This made this made the rounds last year. It got people very excited about this <laughs> film. That is okay. There you are in. <laughs> Sam Moritz or something? Where are you, where are you doing this fancy yeah, thing? Yeah, Sam Moritz. Okay. Well, we're in Italy, but uh, okay. yeah, yeah, selling it. Sa it okay, yeah. so my question is, is it fun to play rich people? <laughs> like, are the conditions for shooting nicer if you're playing a rich person as opposed to, say, an average Joe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's way better. Yeah. Uh, you recommend it? Well, the, in the shooting it, the clothes are nicer, they feel better. 
but the conditions are pretty much not as, as glamorous as that picture is. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's okay, yeah, it, it is, because then people come and they bring Lamborghinis for you to drive, as right. opposed to, I don't know, what the other movies were, they're not Lamborghinis, where it's Pintos or <laughs> Ramblers. There's we, gotta be go something to between a Lamborghini <laughs> and a Pinto. <laughs> this is your second film in the last, coming out this year that you shot with Ridley Scott. Uh -huh. I'm curious, what is the sort of, what, what's he like as a director? Like, you've seen him in totally different situations. There's no relationship in, in story, content, uh, arc, anything between The Duel, right? It's called The Last Duel. The Last Duel. The yeah. Last Duel and House of Gucci. What's the commonality between the way he directs? He has a very uh, specific process where he really believes in momentum. And morale is a, a huge thing. So, and he trusts you, uh, which you expect him to kind of come on with his resume and, and be like, I, you know, I shot Blade Runner and Alien. I, I think you'll, you'll trust me that I'll move on. But if you want to do something, he'll adapt. You know, he's incredibly prepared, but he'll pivot in a, in a minute. Does he give you notes? Does he say, yeah, yeah. like that, but good? E yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, yeah and, and even his notes are very succinct. He doesn't waste time, and he doesn't sweat the small stuff on a, on a set. Last Duel was shot in the countryside of France, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and this is shot in Italy. Are you choosing projects just based upon how good the food is where you go? Completely. And if so, what, if you had to choose, and you must choose, because it's my show. Okay. Uh, French food, Italian food. Oh, my God, yeah. No, you have to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sworn in. I, I, we swore them in backstage. We swear in all of our guests. I'd have to say, I'd have to say Italian food. I, I was kind of taking a... Thank God that was the right answer. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, during the weekends, I'd take some trips up to Tuscany and uh, would eat there if I, uh, as much as I could, and it was pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are you the sort of person who can just eat and not gain weight? And keep in mind that if you say yes, everyone hates you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? No. Oh, really? No. No, that's Shockingly, good. Shockingly, no. That's good. We have to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with more Mr. Adam Driver, everybody. <laughs> Last week was Veterans Day, and you were a Marine, and over a decade ago, I want to get this name right, you co-founded a nonprofit called Arts in the Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to bring theater to um, active duty service members? Well, I had just gotten out of the military, and I was interested in, in acting before I, I left for the Marine Corps. And, you know, when you get out, you kind of pursue the thing that you were interested, or at least I did before, because by comparison to the military, it seems uh, attainable, mm -hmm. which is an illusion. But uh, So I, I happened to have gotten to school at, at uh, Juilliard with, with John, actually. With John, right over there. Yeah. yeah. And that's where we met. And for the first time... We kind I, I, the connection of language and, and exp, uh, through theater that had nothing to do with the military mm -hmm. and the process of working on something mm -hmm. is, is exactly like being in the military. Actually, obviously, one you're pretending the stakes are life and death, and and the other that they actually are. Mm -hmm. But the the team effort of it that you have a role and you know your role within your, your unit, and the person that's leading it is paramount. And if they know what they're doing, what you're doing feels active and relevant and necessary. And if they don't, it feels like a waste of time and dangerous. And it's really not about the individual journey, 
Uh, it's about be <laughs> uh, acknowledging uh, other people and asking them questions about themselves, but working as a, uh, as a team in a unit, you know, and, and it kind of takes the, uh, all to accomplish a mission that's bigger than any one person. And, th and that's exactly what it's like, uh, you know, b being on a film set or a crew, you, you know, everyone's battling technology and time and there's improvisation under pressure and, and people are there for you or they're not, you know. You threw a, a benefit event uh, right, right down the street here at yeah, uh, Roundabout, right? The Studio mm -hmm. 54. Yeah, yeah. We've done a lot of times. Uh, oh, right there? Roundabout. This was just, this was fairly recently. Yeah. There you are right there. And look, a familiar face was there. Yeah. There's John playing at it. John, how, um, <laughs> how, how was it? I, I think it's such a beautiful idea to bring the arts to people outside of Hollywood or the coastal elite cities, art circles and things like that particular people who have risked their lives for our freedoms. So people in my family, going back four generations, have all served this country. So I just love the idea. It was great to be there. Um, and John did one of our first performances that we ever did, which was in Camp Pendleton, Camp Pendleton. where I was stationed at. And when we had initially started it, 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 it was a hard sell because you take, you take theater out of a metropolitan area and suddenly it's a weapon. You know, it, it, when someone's performing it live, it's just more memorable and, and, and effective. Uh, but now, because celebrity really breaks down barriers and opens doors for us in, in a sense. And it's, it's really not for the, the higher-ups anyway. It's really for people that are, are all over the United States or have joined the military for, the, for a green card, you know, and they're, they're the grunts. They're, they're, they don't have access uh, uh, to, to theater, which I think is a, a really, it really is just as valuable a tool to communicate as a rifle. I think it can save your life. Did it save yours? I think so. There's, a, there's not a lot of emphasis on, on articulating a feeling. And I, I, I saw it in people that I served with, and when they couldn't, when they couldn't say the thing, mm -hmm. they'd get mad. You know, they, they'd have aggression. When you can't ar express a thought or a feeling, or, or even though you have, uh, but you have no tools to, to get it out, you, you can watch people self-destruct. And, and I, I think when watching something, even if it's not, we, we specifically pick things that have nothing to do with the military, because we're not telling the military what it's like to be in the military. But through like a, to a Tony Kushner play, or a Stephen Adley Gurgis play, or August Wilson, you, you know, play. Suddenly, you're watching something about, you know, you're watching fences, and you're making a connection uh, that in your life, even though you have nothing, no relationship to those people at all. Their life is completely different than yours. And, and as you feel in your audience, a collective intelligence starts happening in the room in theater with strangers. You know, people have who has totally different experiences in the way they're telling you about the play. And, and, and that's the, the thing about live performance that I, and theater, that why not share that with the, the less than 1% of our country that's being asked to bear 100% responsibility for its safety, you know, because they won't get a play, you know? <laughs> or give them a rifle, but they, you know, uh, Sam Shepard is too, too confrontational, you know? <laughs> you know? I think one of the amazing things about human beings is that we all have so many emotions, but we're often so poorly trained to share them with each other, that we will go pay money to sit in a dark room and watch people on stage have them for us. Yeah. And there is some magical transformation that happens in us by witnessing the freedom that's happening on stage. And right. And it frees you in some way. And a dialogue that is not... That literally, people breathe and start breathing in rhythm. You, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, the, the temperature changes. I mean, it, and...
the, the diversity of audience with the diversity of and specificity of a great story on stage. There's nothing more ancient than that, actually. The idea and something of, that was very common at one time. Oh, it's yeah. It's in our modern lives that theater is only in metropolitan areas. It's, it's, it goes to the Greeks. You know, you know Aeschylus, Euripides, you know, they, they were generals who wrote plays for an audience at war. So they would get together and sit and watch someone in their community enact what was just happening on the battlefront. And, you know, that, that, it's not a new idea. It's actually an ancient one. And actually, when I came back to New York, I, I saw, like, a, I went and saw a movie and I went and saw some, a gallery. And, and then I, I saw a, a Carolina Change that was also in the... Right down here. Yeah. At the roundabout, which was is, which is amazing. Like, it doesn't get more archaic than this, in a sense, where it's just a people that we're pretending we don't see, and they're pretending they don't see us, and we're watching, you know them, you know, advocate a life that we don't know, that if it's, uh, suddenly we're all reminded of our, our shared humanity, you know, in a way that also in movies, I think, can happen, which is what's dangerous about streaming, but I won't uh, leave that alone. But there's something powerful <laughs> about getting in a dark room with strangers and sharing, watching something collective, you know. Um, I hope people are doing it in a dark room right now yeah, at yeah. home. Yeah, yeah. In their beds. With sure. strangers. <laughs> well, Adam, it was so great yeah, to have yeah, you yeah, here. Thanks for being here. Sorry for monologuing about it. I love it. Up next, America Ferrera. Hey. Hi. It's so nice to see you again. Oh my gosh, it's so good it has to be been back. forever. We have not Ever. talked uh, in, on, you know, in front of a camera since 2018. I can't believe that. And since then, uh, you have had a baby girl, Lucia. Lucia. That is wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Second. She's, she's number two. Number two. She was born May 2020. All right, great. I was seven months pregnant when mm -hmm. quarantine began. And she has a lot of 2020 energy. She sure. is... Um, fierce and sort of unrelenting and she bites occasionally and sure it has uh i, I can't believe this has flown so fast ugly betty premiered 15 years ago you've changed a little <laughs> and what what do you remember about getting that gig because oh what God. i mean how did you find out that you were going to be the lead Oh, this show. I was I was 21. Um, I was doing an off-Broadway play called Dog Sees God. Mm -hmm. It was a two-day show. I was in between shows. I was going around the corner to get a pizza because that's what was cheap, and I like didn't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and I got the phone call while I was like having a slice of pizza in between shows off-Broadway, and it was like I mean, obviously life-changing on so many levels. When did you know the show was a hit? I mean. You know, it, I was working so hard, and I was on a soundstage like 20 hours a day. You don't really have time. You're you in a bubble. You don't really have, you're in a bubble. You don't have the concept of like, yeah, I guess people are watching this. We were sort of like, you know, 17 million people watched a premiere. Like, what does that even mean? That's just a number. But I think the first time I, like, realized what it means to be on television, like, in people's living rooms all around the world, I was traveling. I was on a vacation with my my now husband, then boyfriend, and we were like in Italy and we were going to look, we were going to Murano, which is a tiny little island where they blow colorful glass. And it was like, oh, this is so nice, we're getting away. And I was on this tiny little island and the woman said, 
ugly Betty. And she, you know, I was on a tiny island in Italy and someone recognized me and I thought, um, I was like, I can't believe this. And also I'm gonna have to buy some colored glass now because she was such a fan and she like, you know, people think you're on TV and you have a lot of money, but everything she showed us was like a $20,000 Boston Terrier. And I was like, what? I So I left with this $600 menorah and I'm not Jewish, but like, but, but it I bet it's like, lovely. I bet it's lovely. But now menorah is my my husband's code word. Like for, when some for like eject. Like do not get. <laughs> like do not get. This, let, don't let this person upsell you. But I didn't want the $20,000 Boston Terrier, so I went for the menorah. And sure. I gave it to my friend, Sarah, who sends me a lovely picture every Hanukkah. Oh. Yeah. That's absolutely lovely. So it had a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, you've been so politically active, um, you know, uh, working to empower other Latinos. And I'm just wondering, like, Many people are politically active in, in voting years. Mm -hmm. How do you keep that going between the times when it's sort of in the public consciousness not as much? Yeah, well, I think those are the times where it's the most important to, to engage communities and engage people because, look, I feel like I've had the experience of I could set my clock every two months before an election, you know, People think it's enough to like pull out Ugly Betty at a rally and be like, Buenos dias, Ugly Betty está aquí, go out and vote. Like that, that, that's like a winning strategy, you know? And it's, you know, not, yes. shocker. Yes. And, and if, I think what I've learned being out there registering people to vote, trying to get people to vote, is that it's not about people's vote, it's about people's lives. And people understand when things are transactional mm -hmm. and you're just there to get a vote a couple months before a campaign. Communities need sustained engagement. They need education. They need, they need to deeply understand how their vote is tied to their lives, to their health insurance, to their education, uh, to, their, to their neighborhoods. Um, and I think it's the work we do in a non-election year that determines what happens in an election year. What? Yes, absolutely right. America Ferreira. Why aren't you running for office? Oh, God. Why are you running for office? <laughs> we'll run together. We'll run together. Exactly. But come on, President America? I mean, it's, it, it writes itself it a kinda, little bit. It kind of does. It kind of does. Now, your show, uh, Hentified, yeah. is back for season two. Congratulations Thank for that. That's so always much. a very good feeling. On Hentified, you're both uh, directing and executive producing. That's right. So what's the show about and what can we expect this yeah. year? I, Hendified is a dream come true for me as an executive producer, as a director. I directed three out of the eight episodes this season. Um, the show is about a family, the Morales family in Boyle Heights, a small, predominantly Mexican-American community in Los Angeles. And it's about this family and it's about their joy and it's about love and humor. And at the center of this season, the end of season one, spoiler alert, go watch it, um, is that Pop, who we know and love and who the whole family's been fighting to keep his taco shop open, gets picked up by ICE. And we learn when, when his family learns that he is, in fact, undocumented. And so season two is about him not knowing what his fate is going to be. And uh, Pop is played by the incomparable Joaquin Cosio. You know him from Narcos, Mexico. You know him from a million things. He's like our Marlon Brando. He's brilliant. Um, and it's just this story about 
uh, about humanizing the families and the lives and the people behind what most people know as like headlines and statistics. But it's a comedy drama and it's uh, hilarious and has style and will make you laugh and cry. And I, it for me is a dream come true as someone who started in this industry 20 years ago um, and was asked to speak with more of an accent and there, were, there weren't you know, roles for someone like me when I began. And so to come full circle 20 years later to get to create, executive produce and direct shows that create that opportunity for so many Latinx talented creators is really a dream come true for me. Well, congratulations on the second season. Season two of Hentified is on Netflix now. This has been The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert weeknights at 11.35, 10.35 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more.